So the other day I was talking with a man who runs a billion dollar company and he turns and he looks at me and he says, Kevin, what are we going to do? The world feels like it's falling apart. It's getting worse every day. And how am I supposed to raise my girls? Kevin, what are we going to do? And see this man, he had all the resources, all the advantages you could think of. He had money, power, influence, and still his question was, what are we going to do? See, it's a reasonable question. In fact, it's our question. We live in a broken world. We live in the already, not yet. Already Jesus has come, but still our bodies fail us. Still our friends abandon us. Our enemies still attack us. We still lose loved ones. We even disappoint ourselves. And so life as broken people in a broken world produces in us grief and sorrow. And so the question, what are we going to do, quickly becomes, where can we go with our sorrow? Where can we turn with our complaining, with our cries, with our groans? So to answer that question this morning, we're going to take a look together at Psalm 5. Before we do, just a couple things you should know about it. First, it's a prayer written by King David. So as we move through it, it's going to feel like we're eavesdropping. The second is uh, it was a Jewish morning prayer. So routinely, the nation of Israel would end their day with a reading of Psalm 4, but then quickly, first thing in the morning, start their day with a reading of Psalm 5. The last thing you should know about it is it's a lament. So specifically, it's a prayer about grief and sorrow. So If you have your Bibles or your smart devices with you, turn with me to Psalm 5. If you don't, at the top of the sermon guide, the text will be included. To give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I'll bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies." Make your way straight before me. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So again, the question we're going to answer this morning is, as people living in a broken world, as people living in the already but not yet, where can we go with our sorrow? So to answer that question, we're going to take a look at three things. First, what does Psalm 5 teach us to direct our hearts? Second is, what is it that sets our hearts in order? Or in other words, renews our hearts, quickens our hearts. And third is, what type of renewed heart does it produce in us? So first, where do we direct our hearts? You'll notice that in verses one and two, David says, give attention to my words, to my groans, to my cry. In other words, he's saying, I need someone to listen to me. I need someone 
to hear not just what I have to say, but things so deep in me, I can't even find the words to say them. Only thing I can do is cry about them. What's interesting is as you look at who David's talking to in verse one, it says, oh Lord. And that name is translated, or the name being translated there is Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. See, David is, he's calling God, he's calling his king by his first name. And then he goes on to say, my king and my God. He doesn't just call him the king or the God of Israel, but he takes him to himself in intimacy and says, my king, my God. And then he says to you, you only do I pray. See, David, he wakes up in the morning, life in a broken world, full of groaning, full of sorrow. And he says, before I'm ready to engage with a broken world again, I've got to have my heart dealt with. Something has to happen with my heart. And then he decides, I'm going to run to my covenant king. I'm going to run to my friend, Yahweh. And as he does, it's really interesting. You you notice what he does. He resolves to do two more things. In verse three, if you flip down to it, he says, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice before you. Other translations say, I direct my prayer to you, or I set it out before you. See, David's saying, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to take the sorrow that's in my heart. I'm going to run to Yahweh, and I'm going to lay it down in front of him. And then he says, I'm going to watch. He expects Yahweh to act. He expects him to to do something to move. It's, It's something experience has taught him. What's really interesting is you get the sense he doesn't expect him to do something about his circumstances. See, he says, I need you to hear my groaning. He expects him to do something about his heart. He says, before I can engage with the world, I need my groaning, my sorrow dealt with. And so by now you're, you're going, Kevin, what in the world does this have to do with us 3,000 years later in our groaning? Well, we live in the same broken world David lived in. We deal with the same exact broken heart David dealt with. But what's interesting in Hebrews 11, it teaches us that on this side of the cross, something even better has been revealed to us. Something even better has been provided for us. Hebrews 11 teaches us that in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of sorrow, we run to Jesus. And then it goes on to say to look to him, to consider him. Right, so as we turn and we run to Jesus, we set aside our sorrow and we look at who Jesus is, right? In, uh, in John 16, Jesus goes on to say, I've said these things to you that in me, you might have peace. In the world, you're gonna have trouble, but take heart for I've overcome the world. See, it's when we run to Jesus, he acknowledges our sorrow. He doesn't hide from the fact that the world's broken, that we're broken, but he says his intent towards us is that in him, in the person of Christ, in who he is, we would have peace. And then he goes on not just to leave us in our sorrow, but to say that in him, we can find courage, specifically because he's overcome the world. So the same thing that's discouraging us, the same world that we're feeling sorrow over, Jesus says, I've overcome, I've dealt with. So this morning, I wanna leave you with a first question. Where do you go with your sorrow? When you wake up in the morning and things are heavy from the day before and you're looking into life in a broken world, what do you do? Do you bottle it up? Do you go jump in the shower, 
crash into life in a broken world. As Psalm 5 teaches us that on this side of the cross, we turn to Jesus. We run to Jesus and find in him one who gives our heart great courage. So as we move to the second point and we think about running to Jesus, what exactly is it that sets our heart in order? What is it that transitions us from groaning to a heart that's ready to face life in a broken world? The answer to that question, I wanna flip back to David for just a second. You'll see in verses four through 10 that David wakes up, he decides I'm gonna run to Yahweh. Sorry, I'm really close to the speaker there. He's gonna run to Yahweh. He's gonna lay his heart out before him and he expects Yahweh to act. He expects him to enter his heart and do something about his groaning. But it's funny, if you read really closely, you see that it's not David who acts, it's Yahweh who acts. In verse four, it says, for you are not a God who, see, David instantly begins to recognize something about Yahweh. It's sort of like he, he runs to the altar, he lays his heart out on the altar, and suddenly he catches a glimpse of Yahweh, of who he is. And you'll see as he does that, he notices a few things. The first thing he notices is Yahweh's a God who hates evil. Yahweh's a God who destroys evil. And you can imagine how comforting that must have been in that moment for David, because he's there lamenting evil. Like the exact thing that he's dealing with, that he's lamenting, he knows that in Yahweh will not and cannot last forever. And then the next thing, you don't really pick it up directly in the text. It happens subtly, but you realize that as David comes, he lays his heart on the altar, he looks at Yahweh, he suddenly starts to realize something about himself. That the exact same evil that Yahweh hates and destroys, that he's longing for it to be over, that he himself is guilty of. We won't do it, but if you just flip to 2 Samuel, you'll learn in the span of just one chapter that David is an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, a manipulator, a deceiver. And so exactly there, you come to the climax of Psalm 5. In the space between verses 6 and verses 7, you feel the tension of the question, if Yahweh hates evil and David is guilty of evil, then on what grounds is their friendship built? How is it possible that David can come to Yahweh? And then really quickly, you realize that David catches another glimpse of who Yahweh is. Yahweh reveals one more thing to him about him. And in verse seven, you realize that David recognizes that Yahweh's steadfast love towards him is abundant. It's, in other words, it's inexhaustible. It can't be measured. It, it never runs out. And so really, really quickly, David realizes that he's standing there in the presence of Yahweh, not on his own merit, but because Yahweh loves him. Not to call out Fletcher, but as a, a, a remark, but it was a beautiful uh, thing with Fletcher this morning. I, all you dads in the room, I think you know exactly what this moment is about. Caleb turned two and a half this morning, and I was working through the sermon. I was thinking about the day that he was born, and I remember the feeling watching him come out of the womb, and I can only describe it as feeling like my soul was literally knit to Caleb's. Like his well-being couldn't be separated from my own well-being. See, you guys who have, and this goes for moms as well, but those of you who have sons and daughters, you realize that your love for your son or your love for your daughter doesn't start with them, it starts with you. 
that when they run to you, you stand ready to listen, ready to respond, ready to act on their behalf. So you've heard us talk about it before. It's the hesed or the steadfast love of Yahweh that David's talking about here. One commentator goes on to describe it this way. He says, hesed often has that flavor. It's not merely love, but loyal love. It's not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. It's not merely affection, but affection that's committed itself. So David runs to Yahweh. He lays his heart out before him. He sees in him one who's making an end to evil. He sees in himself the same evil. But he also sees in Yahweh one who loves him. And suddenly his heart starts to quicken, right? He woke up that morning in some ways that you could describe dead, right? Groaning, crying, unable to engage with a broken world. And then finally, he starts to find the words to pray. You'll see in the following verses that David begins to make three requests and they don't flow out of David's sorrow, but they flow out of who Yahweh is. He considers who Yahweh is and now he can speak. And he asks for three things. The first is he asks to be led. So you'll notice that he looks at his world, he looks at himself, he looks at Yahweh, and then he realizes he can't stand on his own two feet that he can't navigate the brokenness of a broken and dying world, but his king can. And so he pleads with him. He says, lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. So he realizes suddenly that if I'm gonna engage with the broken world, I have to do it led by Yahweh. I can't do it on my own. And then he, he asked for two more things. The next thing he asked for is that evil would come to an end. He knows in his heart that this thing that he's wrestling with, that he's dealing with, it, it can't go on forever. It has to find an end. And he finds that in his God who's making an end of evil. And then lastly, he prays for all the people who take refuge in Yahweh that their groaning, the same groaning he experiences in the beginning, would be turned into singing. By the time you get to verse 11, he prays that they'd be able to rejoice that as Yahweh extends his wing out to cover over those who take refuge in him, that they'd be able to exalt, right? So you see that David wakes up in the morning dealing with groaning, and our question is, where can we go with groaning, and how can we find a renewed heart? And you'll see that what David does is he lays down his sorrow, and he begins to consider who Yahweh is, and his heart starts to waken up. He's not there yet, but he's finally able to pray. And so we turn back to ourselves and we say, well, again, what does that have to do with us? By now we've established that David's relationship with Yahweh is pretty remarkable. But again, Hebrews 11 teaches us that on this side of the cross, something even better has been revealed to us. Something even better has been provided for us. As we run to Jesus, we find in him one who's making an end to evil we find in him one who's making all things new. We find in him one who loves us so inexhaustibly. If you guys want to, you can flip with me to Revelation 19, but it describes Jesus' making an end to evil in this way. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
and the armies of heaven were following him. He will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. But then it goes on in Revelation 21, not just to talk about the destruction of evil, but the future hope of his people, the, what the future will be like for those who take refuge in him. And Revelation 21 says it this way, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, just like David, we wake up, we deal with groaning, and when we resolve to run to Jesus and consider who he is, we find in him one who's making an end to evil, but also who loves us. And at the same exact time as we turn to that hope, we face the same exact tension David does. We have to answer the same exact question that David had to answer in between verses six and seven. On what grounds do we have grace access into the grace provided to us by Jesus? On what grounds do we have access into the hope of Revelation 21? See, we're, uh, if you take inventory of your own heart, I know I was doing the same thing as I was working through this and I was thinking about my last week and my last month and my last year. And suddenly we realize we're all guilty the exact thing that we're longing for Jesus to come back and make an end of, we participate in. Romans 3 says it this way. It says, no one is righteous. No, not one. It's funny, I was doing a, a little study on what the, that Greek word, no one, means. It means no one. It literally means not you, not me, not Caleb, my two-year-old, not the president, not our church staff, not the presbyter. No one is righteous. No, not one. And then honestly, I started to get just a smidge depressed or just like a little bit of despair. And then suddenly we're reminded that just like David could stand in the presence of Yahweh through the abundance of his steadfast love that we're loved in Christ. So if you flip over to Romans 5, it says it this way. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the exact same Christ who was the original agent of creation the exact same one who in Revelation 19 and 21 is making an end of evil, a final complete end, and who's wiping away sorrow, first stepped down into his creation to make a beginning to an end of evil, and that's by taking our sin to himself, bearing it in himself, taking it to the cross. We sang about it this morning, that in the death, in the life, in the resurrection, in the ascension of Jesus, we have access to the throne of grace. We're able to stand in the presence of God. Romans 5 goes on to say, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
See, this is the great truth of the gospel. That in Christ, God is making all things new. That in Christ, death, sorrow, evil is coming to an end. That in Christ, we sinners, all of us in the room, who justly deserved God's wrath are now made alive together with him. In an even better way than Mark feels towards Fletcher, we're called his son, we're called his daughter. We're being renewed in his image. The amazing thing about it is living in a broken world as people who believe in the already but are living in the not yet, we're able to look forward to a day when we're gonna meet him face to face. And when we meet him face to face, we won't meet his judgment, but we'll meet one who's gonna wipe away every tear. So as we think about how do we live in a broken world, where can we turn with our hearts? It's we turn to Jesus. We lay our heart down before him and instead of our sorrow, we consider who he is. And in the midst of who Jesus is, we realize that we're loved. We realize that evil is coming to an end and he's making all things new. So I want to ask you a second question. First one was, what do you do with your sorrow? The second one is, when you come to him, when you come to Jesus with your sorrow, how do you come? Do you come on your merits? Do you come with a long list of solutions that you need him to execute? Psalm 5 teaches us that on this side of the cross, we run to Jesus. And rather than coming on our own merits, we consider who he is. We come on his merits. And then we can finally express that we can anticipate a day when evil and sorrow will end and our tears will be wiped away. So finally, as we move to our third point, we've talked about where can we direct our heart as to Jesus. We've talked about what it is that sets our hearts in order, and it's not our ability to petition well, it's not our ability to list our groaning well, but it's to catch a glimpse of who Jesus is and then consider who he is. That it's not our sorrow that pulls us out of our sorrow, but it's him. The final question is, how does it renew our heart? What kind of heart does it leave us with? To answer that question, I'm going to flip back to David for just one last time. If you look at verse 12, remember David began by saying, I need someone to hear my groaning. Yahweh, I need you to enter my heart. I need you to do something about my heart. And then as he lays it out, Yahweh starts to act. Yahweh starts to show him who he is and his heart starts to wake up, quicken a little bit. And then suddenly like that, his heart comes alive. By the end of the time that he's looked at Yahweh, looked at his world, looked at himself and looked back at Yahweh, he suddenly come to the conclusion that he says, you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. See, David was finally now ready to face life in a broken world. He had set aside his merits. He had set aside his sorrow. He had looked 
that one who loves him, who's making an end of evil, who covers him with favor, and he can now finally go engage a broken world knowing that he does it in Yahweh. He does it loved by him. And so one last time we flip back to ourselves. And we know that while that's amazing, something even better is provided for us on this side of the cross. See, Romans 8 goes on to describe the confidence that we end up with in Christ this way. It says, the sufferings, in other words, the sorrows, the groans, the the loss of our loved ones, the persecution of enemies, the letting down of ourselves. It says the sufferings of this present time, the, the not yet that we live in, aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. That, that literally the future hope we have with Christ isn't even worth laying alongside. The sorrow is not even worth laying alongside it. It's so much better. It's so much different. And then finally, Romans 8 ends the matter this way. It expresses the confidence we have after we consider God's love for us, but the evil of the present age, what's been provided for us in Christ. And it says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Romans 8 says that as we take our sorrow and we run to Jesus, we realize very, very, very quickly that not only are we covered with favor as with a shield, but we're more than conquerors. We can move into a world knowing that it's being redeemed by the same one who's redeeming us, who loves us. And so on that grounds, we're able to engage with a broken world. We're able to move past our sorrow knowing that it's being worked out, knowing that a day is coming when all things will be made new. And so we can bear with life in a broken world. So this morning we answered the question, where can we go with our sorrow? As broken people living in a broken world, where can we go with our complaints and our cries? And where can we find a new heart? And we looked at how Psalm 5 teaches us that on this side of the cross, we run to Jesus. We set aside our sorrow and we look to him. We consider who he is. And in the presence of who he is, we realize that all things are being made new. Evil's coming to an end. And that we're loved inexhaustibly. Just before we sign off, I want to ask you, two last questions. So if you're in Christ this morning, 
you're here and you've given yourself to Jesus, you count yourself as one who's run to him and taken refuge in him, then the question I have is super practical. How do you start your day? Do you wake up in the morning, jump in the shower, and then in your own strength, on your own merit, go crash into life in a broken world? And I'm not just talking about, I mean, that, that specifically is about the morning, but I'm not just talking about before breakfast. I mean that in general. On what grounds do you engage with a broken world? Is it in your own merit or is it in Christ who loves you and is making all things new? The second question I have is if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, literally meaning you haven't asked him to lead you, you don't consider yourself one who takes refuge in him, then the question I have is, what's keeping you from him? This morning, literally, will you come to him, bring your sorrow to him, and find in him one who loves you, who's making all things new, and who's making an end to evil and sorrow? Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you as the one who loves us and who came and lived and died and rose and ascended to the right hand of God. And we take great comfort in knowing that you're there interceding for us. And Lord, even as we love your intercession, more than that, we long for the day that you'll return. We long for the day that the already will destroy the not yet. Lord, we long for the day that our tears will be wiped away. And Jesus, we thank you that in you we're able to have great confidence, that we're able to have freedom from our sorrow and our brokenness and can find life and can find a renewed heart in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.